Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Sorcerer's Orphan, a podcast created to dissect and explore the inner workings and inspired accidents that have helped the Flaming Lips write, create, and record some of our most iconic music and songs. I'm Stephen Droz, and I will be your host and your guide for this half hour of discussion and rememberings. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. is the song Unconsciously Screaming from the 1990 album In a Priest-Driven Ambulance, a hypnotic, psychotic, rollicking, wild, trip-rock ride that to me is quintessential vintage Flaming Lips. And I say that because this is the Flaming Lips before I was even in the group. We'll talk about the mixing of this song, and we'll hear from some former members of the group that were a big part of this classic recording. We have a really great show ahead for you. So, let's begin where we always do. This song was written and conceived and demoed in the spring of 1989. It was recorded just a few months later with Dave Fridman at the State University of New York Music School in Fredonia, New York. And it was released in September of the actual demo tape that was recorded at Michael Ivan's parents' house in the spring of 1989. But like I said, this was before I was actually in the Flaming Lips. I wouldn't join the group for another couple years. But I had seen them in Austin about a year and a half after this demo was made. They really made an impression on me. And I thought to myself, this is the kind of group I could imagine being in. Let me explain what I saw and heard. First of all, their set list was this. It was only six songs. The first song was Five Years. The second track they played was Every Christian Lionhearted Man Will Show You. Number three was Under Pressure. Song number four in the set was Unconsciously Screaming. Number five was Loose for Rising and they finished their set with one million billionth of a millisecond on a Sunday morning. For my young but already slightly jaded ears, this was kind of mind-blowing. They did Five Years, a great classic David Bowie track to start the show. 
Every Christian Lionhearted Man, a song I didn't know but later would find out, was by the Bee Gees. How weird is that? An obscure 1967 Bee Gees cover in 1990. And Under Pressure, again, by David Bowie and Queen. Nobody in the pre-grunge world of underground guitar rock was doing this type of mixture of punk rock and classic rock, acid rock, freak rock, but catchy songs with great melodies. And their own compositions, Unconsciously Screaming, Loose for Rising, and One Million Billionth, they were heavy, but they weren't heavy in that aggressive, testosterone-fueled kind of heavy. Heavy rock, but not we're mean guys kind of heavy rock. It was childlike and simple. The joy of being loud is the spark of energy. The sheer dumb thrill of playing music at such an insane volume, the way they did. It took the whole experience into another dimension. Like a living, absurd cartoon. It wasn't all seriousness and power. The vibe was more like, isn't it fun as hell to play at this kind of volume? I had gone to the show with some musician friends who were familiar with the lips and who was who in the group. And even then, I knew who Michael was, and I knew, of course, who Wayne was. But the two new guys, none of us really knew them as people, but we were liking them in this new version of The Flaming Lips. The previous lineup of The Flaming Lips had Richard English as their drummer. He was a stylistically different type of drummer. He was full of crazy, unpredictable energy, and could be sloppy, and he could speed up songs, but a lot of times in a really cool and charming way. But the new drummer, Nathan Roberts, was solid and tasteful, and it really suited their new direction. The drum fill at the very start of Unconsciously Screaming is deceptively simple, which is a very hard thing to do. It just sounds perfect for the song. That Like all great music, it's as if it was meant to be. And here's what Nathan had to say about it. Yeah, I don't I don't ever remember us really rehearsing the song before we recorded it. I mean, from what I remember, what's on the record is maybe the what maybe fifth or sixth time we had played it. I mean, it was the first song I ever recorded with you guys. Well, I, I was trying to think about that. It, I can't, on one hand, it seemed like looking for like a uh, kind of a whole lot of love, like snare fill coming in, like a yeah, that, 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 that you know. And, or, but, but may have just fed it straight to me, like exactly wanted a big booming you know, I, I don't remember exactly, but it, 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 however that happened, I mean, I definitely thought it was a great way to say, you know, like, hi, I'm Nathan. The other new member on stage that night was Jonathan Donahue. You may know him from his group Mercury Rev. But just before there was a Mercury Rev, Jonathan was an important part of this new version of The Flaming Lips. Jonathan had joined the Flaming Lips mostly as a roadie, at first, in 1988. But, as curious creative musicians do, he would, before too long, be, sometimes, secretly playing guitar on the side of the stage, while the then three-piece group, Michael, Nathan, and Wayne, played on the actual stage. 
So let's make that more clear. Jonathan would be tuning guitars and running monitors for the band and sometimes running the sound system. All the things done actually off the stage. So this eventually led to him creating sounds and feeding them into the cacophony of stuff being played on the stage by the Seeable group. He was being embraced by the group and his musical abilities and his primitive and inventive ways of making great demo recordings on his four-track cassette recorder. This was helping them write new and better songs. It wasn't too long before he was a full-fledged new member of the group. Jonathan arrived at a great evolutionary time in the Flaming Lips inner creative circle. Wayne and Michael had already been a touring and recording group for six years and were welcoming fresh energy and ideas into their established identity. And new and fresh it was. Jonathan added a great creative atmosphere to Wayne's simple, whimsical stories. But not only that, Jonathan also knew Dave Fridman and before too long asked Dave to join them on a short American tour running sound. So the previous three-piece group, Nathan, Michael, and Wayne, were now joined by Jonathan and Dave. A new version of the Flaming Lips was emerging, and a new sound as well. They all felt an urgency to capture it. Unconsciously Screaming would be the first song that they would try to capture. They had made an inspired but incomplete demo at Michael Ivan's parents' house. And now they would head to New York's Southern Tier to start a new record and a new way of recording and a new life. The music school at State University of New York in Fredonia was where Dave Fredman was completing his senior class project. Jonathan and Wayne had convinced him to record the new Flaming Lips album as his senior class project. He, knowing it was a risky and daunting endeavor, in the enthusiasm of the moment, cautiously accepted. Unconsciously Screaming was recorded, and, unlike the way they had recorded in the past, they would quickly set to overdubbing and mixing. You see, in the past, the Flaming Lips had, like most groups that had a very limited time to record in a studio, they would record all of the basic tracks, which could be as many as 10 songs, then go back and overdub on the 10 tracks, and then mix the 10 songs. The Flaming Lips, now, along with Dave Fridman, decided to treat each song as its own individual production. So Unconsciously Screaming would be the only song they recorded and the only song they mixed for the first two weeks. It would become the stuff of legend. Now remember, I'm not actually in the group yet, but even I had heard of their uncompromising marathon mixing sessions for this track. It is said that they mixed and remixed this track over 100 times. This is before the days of computer mixing, So, back then, each mix would be done by hand, meaning all the members of the group grabbing two or three of the faders on the board and turning on EQs and effects as the tape ran by. An insane, intimate, awkward, and intense shared experience. And a motherfucker of a way to make music. (laughs) We can now conclude that the Flaming Lips are indeed a very determined group. But back then, in 1989, it was still unknown even to them if they were just stubborn, indecisive amateurs, or if they were an incredibly unique originators of a new kind of art rock. <laughs> Probably a little bit of both, you know. This is Jonathan Donahue. I spoke with him over the phone from his home in Woodstock, New York. 
I think it was one big cauldron of myself and Wayne and Michael and Dave and Nathan doing something that no one around us at the time was doing without outside help. And what I mean is we didn't have a big time producer come in and say, boys, I've made records for 30 years. Here's how you do it. We didn't have any guidelines. So back then, they would mix down to a cassette tape. And then they would compare their new mix to a cassette tape of the then yet to be released song by a new band called Nirvana. They, the band, would then pit themselves against Dave Fridman and his engineer in what they called the Volume Wars. Here's Jonathan again. So here's what I remember, boys. Basically, I, I was living with Michael over there in OKC at his folks' house. And uh, every day, Wayne would show up at noon in the station wagon. And Michael and I had set up this old Tascam four track and we had this Radio Shack Pizio mic. And it was set up on the living room floor and Michael had a kick drum and a snare and Wayne would have his guitar there. And Wayne would run through these chords and maybe sing a few phrases into the four track. And probably somewhere along the way with unconsciously screaming, it probably began with Wayne sort of heavy on the riffing part of it. And maybe along the line, he probably said, now Dingus, you ought to play something. Dingus was a nickname that Wayne affectionately called Jonathan by at this time. You know, go do something Dingus-like on that. And that's probably where, you know, some of that flutter in the howl and if I remember the wah-wah first came in. And the, the reason I mention all this is because it was important to how the recordings would go, especially with unconsciously screaming, because then we would add a few more parts during the day. And then Wayne would show up the next morning, almost on cue. I mean, I think we really liked our earth sign routines. And he'd show up and he'd say, all right, boys, come on, let's go for a ride. Which meant the three of us would jump in the blue van which had this old cassette player, and we would listen to the demo four track that we had done the day before. And this was kind of the ritual for the mushroom tapes, as I recall. Now, the reason the cassette tape protocol, to me, from what I remember, became so much of the quality control in Fredonia during the mixing process of the recordings was because we based so much of the hours and hours we would record and mix with Dave on a cassette tape Dave would record the mix down to and we'd run out into the parking lot in Fredonia, pop it in the van and listen on the old cassette player in the van with the really old speakers in the blue van. And then we'd all run back inside and say, Dave, 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 you gotta do this, you gotta do that. What were we thinking? And if I recall, probably a number of the first mixes we did for Unconsciously Screaming were basically a balancing act in the van, going back in, 
to Dave and his engineer there in a pristine environment and saying, we want this and we want that. And I think it kept taking a, an awful lot of mixes to get to a certain point. And if you remember, there was this funny little thing that happened during Priest, the Nirvana tape. There was a cassette tape that had Nirvana on it that we had gotten from, I don't know, Jonathan Poneman in Seattle a year or two before during Oh My God. And for some reason, we could not beat the level that this homemade, crappy cassette had of Nirvana's Love Buzz, I think it was, on the new Priest recordings. And we were going crazy. We began redlining the desk and Dave was freaking out, like, you can't do this. You shouldn't have levels in the red. And he was pulling his ears out. We don't care. It sounds better. And that began the sort of, some of the, the volume wars, because we went away for two weeks to Houston, down there in Texas, and we had sort of left with that ultimatum of, if we don't come back and sort of beef up these mixes, we might have to look and do something else. I think we were all confused just why we couldn't. I don't know that we had any greater insight into the technology behind any of it. I just don't think we knew why we couldn't beat this cassette in general. You know, why we couldn't have levels that were seemingly burning off of the the cassette. If anything came out of it, I think it reinforced something in me and to do it yourself. To stick to your own guns. To follow your own intuitions, all of you. Including Dave. So this do-it-yourself, never-give-up quality would be something I would soon see for myself. But let me backtrack a bit. While I was living in Austin, I saw an ad in the local hip music newspaper, the Austin Chronicle. The ad read, Janice 18 looking for a drummer, Schaefer Beer and Tommy Lee. Wait a minute. The ad said what? Janice 18 looking for a drummer, Schaefer Beer and Tommy Lee. Okay, so Janice 18. This is the name of the group, like... Janice 18, like a Jane, like Jane's Addiction. Maybe uh, subliminally, it made me think of um, At 17 by Janice Ian. Maybe not, but there was something to it that I just kind of went with it. Okay, and so Schaefer Beer. What does Schaefer Beer mean? Well, Schaefer Beer is a cheap, a cheap but uh, delicious beer. I, I guess it kind of means we're not drinking champagne here, you know? All right, and so Tommy, the Tommy Lee part of this... Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. Right, and the reason that would have been kind of a zinger back then in 1990 was that Motley Crue would have been kind of a loathed band in in our scene, you know. But a lot of people secretly thought Tommy Lee was a, a really cool, great, powerful drummer. For some reason, that interested me. So the band was Janice 18, and they were from Norman, Oklahoma, and had recently moved to Austin. And I, through the ad and meeting them at a random party ended up joining them in November of 1990. Now remember, I see the Flaming Lips, who are also from Norman, Oklahoma, 
play a show in Austin just a few weeks after joining Janus 18. So I'm touring around America with Janus 18, and we are a struggling indie rock group, and instead of returning to Austin, we end up retreating to Norman, Oklahoma. I had no true roots or reasons to be living in Austin anyway. Norman was easier and cheaper, and at first I thought they, Janus 18, were hometown heroes. Maybe we can make some money and have some success. It was a fantasy not to be. But I didn't need much of an excuse. Come to find out, they were even less loved and had even less going on in Norman than they had in Austin. So things got more interesting, but also got more desperate. But I personally kind of like this intense do-or-die kind of environment. And I know, by now for sure, I want to make music. I want to write music, I want to play music, I want to record music, and hopefully find a way to make a living from doing music. Though Janus 18 were struggling and dysfunctional, they were far more original and cooler than the previous other groups I was in. And once I got to Norman, I realized that they have connections to a really great 8-track studio that served as a kind of ground zero for the music scene in Norman. And this scene included the Flaming Lips. We were looking for a drummer to replace Nathan Roberts, who I talked to earlier in the show. So, at the same time Janus 18 are falling apart, I'm impressed by how organized and intense the Flaming Lips are. So what started out as a very casual one musician helping another musician was quickly evolving into a professional and creative friendship. And I'm starting to think that I'm in the Flaming Lips, and we are collectively, as a three-piece, looking for a replacement for Jonathan Donahue, who has also left the group. So I've passed the audition, and we are trying out guitar players. We are completely blown away by a guitar wizard freak genius, Ronald Jones. And that, well, that's another story. But we, Wayne and Michael, along with our manager, Scott Booker, have defeated the unknown beyond for the time being. And like I said earlier, the Flaming Lips do not give up. The Flaming Lips find a way to get through the difficult things, and they get through it in their own way. After the break, we will deconstruct the actual song itself, how the chords and melodies and guitar solos all weave together. And Wayne will talk about how the song and its many, many mixes came to be. We'll be right back. Woo! Oh my God, it's Flaming Lips' greatest hits. All my dreams coming true. It's got all my favorite songs. Like this one. Oh, and this. Oh my god, and hard to find songs like this one. I'm so happy. The Flaming Lips Greatest Hits. Available on Warner Brothers Records. Get it now. Attention all Flaming Lips fans and freaks. Attention all Flaming Lips fans and freaks. The legendary 1989 four-track recordings known as the Mushroom Taste is out now on vinyl. Demonstration recordings of the 
assault on in a priest driven ambulance. You hear this? This weird stuff. Sound like this. I'm so tripped out. The Flaming Lips, the Mushroom Taste. Available on Rhino Records. Give it Thank you for listening. This is The Sorcerer's Orphan, a podcast where I, Stephen Drozd, dissect and discuss some of the Flaming Lips' most iconic music and songs. So the song is based on this riff. guitar riff. Very cool, but very simple guitar riff. And it's also played on the bass guitar. You could say it's in the key of F major, or technically C mixolydian. But anybody who really understands music theory knows that it is just theory, and that music is, well, it's just music. Knowing the way Wayne and Michael and Jonathan play, I think they just played what they thought sounded cool. And isn't that what you do? You just play what you think sounds cool, and you can throw the music theory at it later. So let's start with the vocal melody. It appears at first to be in the key of C major, but it has this one undecided note that kind of hovers between the fourth step and the sharp fourth step of a scale. Which to my ear makes it immediately interesting, kind of mystical. Remember, I'm not in the group, or am I a part of this recording? Knowing the way Wayne sings, he would probably unintentionally be singing both, the fourth and the sharp fourth. Just singing whatever he thinks sounds cool. And it happens to be both of those notes at different times in the song, which I think is super cool. And so the song seems to be rolling along in the key of C, but has these strange hints and blips of other notes. And then these chords come in. This B-flat chord. Then this F major. And this reshapes the song to be sounding like something that is now in the key of F major. And again, I'm interested because to me, I'm kind of suspended in an uncertain palette of possible notes. And then when the guitar solo starts, 
we are introduced to a completely different scale or mode in the song. This is the C Lydian mode, with an F sharp in the scale instead of an F. These melodic quirks are, to me, the audible equivalent of the lyric Seeing the Unseeable. The notes of that scale, against that simple riff, becomes expressionistic sound effects. Birds flying overhead, or spaceships landing in the distance. Something other than just a simple song. And here's what Wayne had to say about it. So, this is all happening at about five or six years into us being the, uh, you know, the young flaming lips. And our personalities aren't so pronounced yet, uh, like our personalities are now. I think it's, 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 you know, we're more, we've, we've, we've carved out who we are where we are in in the group and but at this point i think i'm probably the main songwriter and michael is playing along and we're coming up with occasionally we're coming up with riffs and unconsciously screaming would be a, a kind of spontaneous song um started with just a riff and probably lyrics and melody kind of being, you know, just happening kind of spontaneously at the same time. But I think it was a very lucky burst at the very beginning to sing Seeing the Unseeable. And even as I was singing it and even as it was happening, you're kind of, you're, you're kind of excited by, even though you're doing it, it kind of excites you and it and it and it other things kind of erupt in your imagination as you go and and i think i think quite a few of the things that i sang right there on the spot were probably we probably immediately thought oh that's really great and it would not have been that much that we had to fill in i think the 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 demo of that song and the finished song are very very similar in a sense um and then the recording of the track i i think this idea that the flaming lips you know that we would have done a hundred different mixes and re redoing it and redoing it this would be something that uh, you know, it's kind of em- embarrassing in a way, but I, but, but it is, it is true. But I, I don't think we ever began to mix or ever begin to mix any any track and think, oh, you know, it's it's this is going to be the equivalent to Stanley Kubrick doing, you know, 70, 80, 90 takes of a single scene. I think we oftentimes think that we're going to mix it in just a moment and or the very next mix that we do is going to be the last one. And I, I remember during Unconsciously Screaming, we would make these sort of great leaps and bounds. Um, and each time we would do a mix, something would kind of reveal itself to us and that would make us jump back in and say do it again only let's do this and let's do that and 
I do think, even for back then, it was probably over a hundred mixes, but these weren't all done, you know, in one day. You know, this was this was a couple of different sessions, and we would have left for a couple of days and have come back and done more. But the other part of it that isn't as interesting is that, you know, after we mixed Unconsciously Screaming, some of the other tracks we would have mixed almost immediately uh, upon the end of the recording. I think a song like Take Me to Mars uh, or, or God Walks Among Us Now, I mean, I don't even remember those having a second or third mix. I think we knew because of all the mixing that we had done on Unconsciously Screaming, I think we knew it showed us almost exactly how we could mix virtually every other song on the record. So uh, I think in that sort of the scale of, well, you mixed one song a hundred times and then quite a few of the other ones you only had to mix once. Uh, That's a pretty good trade. And that is the end of our show. I want to say thank you to Jonathan Donahue and Nathan Roberts for being part of this podcast. And thank you, the listener, for being here with us. I enjoy these rememberings and conversations so much. And thank you to all the Flaming Lips fans out there. there, 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 there. Join us next time. We'll be talking about this song. This endearing, almost accidentally one-hit wonder. She don't use gel. Until next time, peace and punk rock forever.